and Avianca is flying a leg from Paris to Madrid on its way to Bogota when the flight disappears in the night. What caused this flight to ultimately hit three hills and crash in Mejorada del Campo? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. Any news to report? Not that I'm aware of. I don't know. I don't think there's really much to talk about. I mean, we don't have any new patrons. No. We're doing a giveaway for the 200th episode. Yes, I'm sure you've seen that. By the way, if you didn't see that, you need to check the socials. Yes. When does that end? Do we know? Ask the social media coordinator. Okay. She's not here, so I can't ask that. Uh, you know as much as I do. It may have ended by now. I don't know. But if you were able to do that, we'll announce the winners soon. Yes. If, if we haven't already. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. We have big things coming that we can't tell you about yet. Yes. But also. they're cool. But yes. They're really cool. There's some really cool stuff coming down the line. So now that we're past 200, things are, there's things in the work, in the works now. We've got some, some plans. Plans, I like plans. Yes. But beyond that, it's pretty much the usual this week. Yeah. I mean, sign up for the newsletter, check out the merch page, check out the Patreon page. Order ducks, order merch. That's about it. Like, I don't have any other... And all that jazz. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Avianca Flight 011. Or Flight 11. Yes. Thank you to Joseph for recommending this. Thanks. Is this... No, this is Spanish, right? Yes. Espanol. Why, why does it sound Russian? I don't know. Avianca is Latin American. They are from Colombia. This is specifically Avianca, Colombia. Oh, okay. Although Avianca has a few different companies in which they operate. Peru and Colombia. Fun fact, this flight number is still used. Yes, it is. Between Madrid and Bogota. Guess what this flight was? It's, part of it is from Madrid. To Bogota. Bogota. But not Bogota all of it. Bogota in Spain? No, Colombia. Colombia. Oh. So it's a transatlantic flight. Yes. yes. Got it. Very much so. But this is back when you couldn't just do that. <laughs> I mean, you could, but they didn't. <laughs> they, they stopped everywhere. So this accident occurred on November 27th of 1983. This was a Boeing 747-200, so a nice, sizable airplane, with the tail number Hotel Kilo-2910, and it had a name. Its name was Olafo. What? I have no idea. Okay. O-L-A-F-O. Okay. Make sure I get all the places they stopped correctly. This is a flight from Frankfurt to Bogota. Yep. It was. It was a flight, a regularly scheduled flight from Frankfurt to Bogota with stops in Paris, Madrid, and Venezuela, Caracas in Venezuela, and then Bogota. We will be talking about the Paris to Madrid, so a short leg. But sometimes that's where disaster strikes. Yes. Actually, a lot of the ones we've covered are short hops. Yes. I, I should, I, I say short. The flight's like two hours. Well, Hour and a half. when you talk about a transatlantic flight... Yes, this is definitely the shorter leg. Yeah, like but, two hours compared to right. eight, nine, ten hours. Right. Yeah. But the gist of this is they pick up people in each one of the cities before crossing the Atlantic mm -hmm. because 
they felt that they couldn't fill a full 747 in any one of the particular cities. Now, since then, things have changed, and it seems that there cannot be enough seats across the Atlantic from this, any city to any city. This flight is now done by a 787. Right. And it's just direct Madrid to Bogota. So, The captain for this flight was Tulio Hernandez. He was 58 years old. At the time, he had 23,215 hours total. Good God. Of which 2,432 hours were on the 747. So a pretty decent amount of hours on the 747, but a lot of hours overall. One of the most experienced we've talked about. He was the most senior pilot at Avianca. Uh, he had been with the company for 32 years at that point, That's which a is... long time. Yes. And if you know anything about Avianca, they've also been around for a very, very long time. They're one of the oldest airlines in the world. Other than Qantas. Qantas has also been around for a long time, and KLM has KLM. also been around for a long time. All three of the airlines claim to be the oldest in the world. But uh, all three of them also started with other names. Yes, they When they did. started. Only one of you can claim that title. Figure it out. They can't. They literally can't. There's so many complications about why they claim that. Even British Airways claims to be really old, even though it's only existed since, like, the 80s. Yeah, because they were BOAC first. Well, they were a myriad of airlines. They were British Midlands and BOAC, and they were, there were so many different airlines that came together to make British Airways. So, it's a whole thing. The first officer was Eduardo Ramirez. He was 36 years old. At the time, he had 4,384 hours total, of which 875 were on the 747, so decently experienced. And the flight engineer was Juan Laverde. He was 57 years old. At the time, he had 15,942 hours total, which is very respectable as well, mm -hmm. of which 3,676 hours were on the 747. So he was the most experienced on the airplane. Out of the three of them. The flight engineer? Mm-hmm. That tends to happen, though. Yes. I find that when we talk about flight engineers, especially people who made yes. a career out of being a flight engineer, yep. like, they usually have mm -hmm. the most hours on those aircraft. Correct. I think he was... I read this briefly somewhere, and I cannot confirm nor deny, so don't, don't absolutely quote this as fact, but I think he was the company's most experienced flight engineer mm. and the most experienced on the 747. That sucks. Mm-hmm. Not to foreshadow. Foreshadowing. <laughs> At Paris, 169 passengers and 23 crew, four of which were not working, boarded the aircraft. So four of them were deadheading for just this leg. I don't know if they were working later. I am so unclear as to who's working what flight. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Because there's an auxiliary crew. Yes. Auxiliary crew. But also this crew. Yes. But I'll, I don't know if... The deadheaders are the auxiliary crew? I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. There's a lot of things that I feel like this report left out. I mean, it wasn't, it's a full report. It had all the sections and everything, and it's not that it didn't get to the point, but there's a lot of details that I feel like just weren't there. There were also two relief flight, flight engineers, engineers on yeah. board. Mm -hmm. What I don't know either is who was pilot flying and who was pilot monitoring. The captain was the pilot flying. Okay. Yes. Also, I don't know what their rules were around that. Also, this was 1983, so... Like, right at the <laughs> beginning. Of right around the beginning of CRM. Early beginning, yeah, of the CRM, so... So this is still... It's not to say that they don't follow procedures, but it's like, I don't know what well, theirs were. Well, it might not have been fully proceduralized yet. Right, not for them, maybe, anyways. So I don't know yet. I don't know. I don't know any of that, and we'll talk about that, but it's... None of those details were in the report, It's kind of the point. 
The flight was delayed an hour and 20 minutes at Paris because the leg to and from Frankfurt was canceled. Oh, that sucks. For operational reasons, quote unquote, is the only thing I could find about it. That's okay. all they ever stated the about it. Cool. Operational. Uh, my guess is not enough crew with crew time to operate the to and from Frankfurt. Also, if they didn't have crew originating in Frankfurt, then they couldn't start there. Mm. If they had maybe like the day before the flight had been canceled to Frankfurt and therefore they had ended in Paris. So they kept the airplane there. Paris. Crew started yeah. in Paris and they just canceled the return leg from Frankfurt as well. Things like that happen. It's really not the end of the world. So anyways, that leg to and from Frankfurt was canceled. So they were delayed an hour, 20 minutes to wait for a Lufthansa flight coming in from Frankfurt that was bringing 55 of the passengers that were oh, supposed that was to supposed be on to that leg yeah. Yeah, to Paris to get onto this airplane. Thanks, Lufthansa. Mm-hmm. They saved the day, maybe. Not. Um, Ouch. Considering this was on the yeah, yeah, yeah. podcast. Yes, not so much. So anyways. Just saying. Yep. The flight finally took off at 12.25 a.m. and 35 seconds. So, middle of the night. A little after midnight. Yuck. Local time. Thank you. I was like, excuse me? Local time. They travel back in time. Yes. Yeah, because that's what happens when you go over the ocean. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they're not even going over the ocean. They're just going backwards in time zones. Yeah. Although, I found out that they are the same time zone. Madrid is still in the same time zone as Paris. <sighs> At least they are currently. I don't know if they were at the time. Oh, it's because the, all the times that I read are in GMT. Yeah, they're all in UTC GMT time. But Paris and Madrid are in the same time zone. Okay. Just oh. know that your brain's going to break for time. And that's fine. I wrote all mine in local time. I didn't. So mine will all be local time, but yours, that's fine. We'll, dis we'll discuss it if we need to. Or I'll just do math in my head. It's fine. Two hours. That's it. Thank you. That's simple. Anyways, the flight was scheduled to fly to Madrid via Sid Vaisson. Is that an approach? No, these are just waypoints. Oh. Limoges, Pamplona, Barahona, Castellon, and that's it. Just so you know, Barahona mm -hmm. has an H in it in some of the spellings, but Spanish does not pronounce the H, so you'll no. also see spellings of it. H is a break. It's not a sound in Spanish. It's Barahona. Yeah, but it can also just be Barahona. Right. Without a break. Right. Because that is how it's spelled sometimes. Yes. So, don't come for me. I'm trying, okay? But it's supposed to be a pronunciation tool. Anyways, the climbing crews were normal for this flight. The flight was transferred from French control to Spanish control at 1.31 a.m. and 30 seconds, local time. The flight was cruising at flight level 370 or 37,000 feet at the time. That's where they crossed the border, basically, between France and Spain. French control instructed the flight to contact Madrid Center on 133.95, which the flight crew acknowledged. That's specifically how they got transferred to the Spanish control. The flight contacted Madrid Control, who gave the flight a squawk of 4111 and instructed the flight to fly to the Charlie Papa Lima VOR via Pamplona, Barahona, and Castellón, as per their flight plan. Castellón. Yes, Castellón. The flight crew acknowledged. 1.46 a.m. and 34 seconds, as the flight neared Madrid, the flight crew contacted the control center, the air traffic controller, to request a descent, the air traffic controller gave the flight a descent to flight level 190, or 19,000 feet, and the flight crew acknowledged. The flight then began their descent, normally. 1.52 a.m. and 43 seconds, the flight was transferred to the Madrid approach frequency, and they made initial contact, informing the approach controller that the flight had passed Barahona, 
and requested to fly direct to the Charlie Papalima VOR, bypassing the last waypoint, basically. The approach controller acknowledged and cleared the flight to fly direct to the Charlie Papalima VOR, which is pretty close to the airport. It's just to the right of the ILS. Yes, it's pretty normal. The air traffic controller then instructed the flight to continue descending to 9,000 feet. 1.56 a.m. and 32 seconds, the flight was instructed to contact a different approach frequency on 121.9. The approach controller then cleared the flight for the ILS approach to runway 33 at Madrid. Mm-hmm. Also known as Barajas. Yes, Barajas. 2 a.m. and 7 seconds. The flight reported reaching 9,000 feet to the air traffic controller. The air traffic controller then instructed that the approach was cleared and to continue descending, per the approach, and the flight crew acknowledged. 2.03 a.m. and 29 seconds, the flight was transferred to the tower frequency on 118.15. The flight made initial contact with the tower as they were flying 7 nautical miles from the Charlie Papalima VOR. The aircraft began their turn toward the outer marker for the ILS approach. 2.03 a.m. and 56 seconds, so only about 30 seconds later, the flight was cleared to land on runway 33 by the air traffic controller. The flight crew began an acknowledgement call about this landing clearance, but never completed it. What, is, what does that mean? So they were given instructions that they were cleared to land and what the wind was. They repeated back... The wind conditions. The wind conditions, but never actually repeated back their clearance to land. Okay. The, the transmission just stopped. Solid. This was also the last time that they would be heard from. Oh, well, that's not good. The airplane did, however, continue to fly toward the outer marker mm-hmm. for a short time. Yep. It wasn't It wasn't like anything happened right in that moment, per se, although we'll talk about it. All of this in the dark of night, of course. In the dark of the night. And then everything happens fast from there, because this is just how the story was, and I was told not to add anything that wasn't in the story. I know some of the details, and I didn't add anything that wasn't in the story, and this is all that was in the story, because at this point it just says, a short time later, the aircraft crashed at 2,242 feet above sea level, 12 kilometers southeast of Madrid Airport, near the town of Mejorada del Campo. The aircraft broke up on impact with the terrain. An explosion and post-crash fire ensued. Emergency services were sent to the site. Nine passengers were thrown from the aircraft. Oh, God. Some still attached to their seats. That sounds familiar. Two passengers managed to get themselves out of the wreckage, supposedly. These were the only 11 survivors from the of aircraft. The 747? Yes. Uh-huh. This is the second deadliest accident on Spanish grounds. I was getting there. Sorry. That's fine. All of these 11 had severe injuries. The other 181 passengers and all crew, of course, uh, perished in the accident, making this the worst accident on Spain's mainland and the second worst on Spanish soil because... Tenerife was... Tenerife. Spanish soil. (laughs) Because Tenerife. I was going to specify the call that was made and seemed short, just to... The only reason why I didn't directly quote anything... Because it had it's these... It's all in Spanish. Yes, it had these all quoted. It was all in Spanish, and the translations were not always good. So I know enough Spanish that I think I got this Yes, one. I'm sure. It's fine. I know enough Spanish I could have done it, but I didn't. So, Tower says, Avianca 011, buenas noches. Autorizado a aterrizar pista 33, el viento 18005. So, literally just, mm-hmm. you're cleared to land. Winds this, this, this. Which is very normal. It's still how the call goes these days. Winds 18005 mm-hmm. knots. Right. And the first officer responded, uno ocho cero cero cinco. Right. That's Which it. was the wind speed and direction, but then never actually completed the call saying they were... Also never said their flight land. name, their call sign. Right. We'll talk about that piece in a little while. 
Okay. So that's it. That's that's all the story I'm going to give you. Obviously, there's a lot not in there. Okay. To be <laughs> fair, you said that I would guess. I, I don't have a guess. Okay. Well, they crashed at 2,242 feet above sea level and 12 kilometers from the airport. They also crashed into three separate hills. Yes, they did. They they impacted and, b- and bounced, and then there was another hill, and then, then there was another hill. Yes. Well, part of it has to do with, like, not paying attention, because you don't run into hills. Which makes it? CRM. C-fit. Pilot error. C-fit. C-fit, whatever. So, anyways. Control the above. <laughs> controlled yes. flight into terrain. Not to give it away right off the bat, but we'll give it away right off the bat. It's pretty much it. That's what it is. That's C-fit. But there's a lot more to it than that. Oh, yes. Okay, this investigation was performed by the Spanish Accident Investigation Commission, or the CIAIAC. That thing. That one, who we just talked about like two episodes ago. Yep. They were notified of the accident at 12.40 a.m. UTC, which is like half an hour after the crash. Yep. Both black boxes were recovered on the day of the accident in acceptable condition. They didn't say where they sent them for analysis. I don't know if they sent them. I don't know. Not a clue. The FDR had a recording of 64 parameters, and the CBR had the usual four channels. However, the crew did not use their headphones or microphones for internal communication. (laughs) So investigators had to rely on the channel that records the ambient voices in the cockpit. We're off to a good start. Uh Uh-huh. Isn't it kind of hard to hear? Yes. Especially in a 200? Yes. It's a loud airplane. That's why you're supposed to use your headphones. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Your headsets? Yes. I'm not saying no to any of that because you are correct. Okay. The first part of the analysis was entitled The Development of Flight, which is a fancy way of saying they recreated the events based on the CBR, FDR, and air traffic control recordings beginning at 11.26 p.m. UTC. From then until 11.40, the crew tried to contact Avianca operations in Bogota, during which time they also selected the VOR DME from Madrid known as Charlie Papa Lima, or CPL, establishing that their distance to it was 132 miles. They were unable to establish radio contact with Avianca Ops in Colombia, so they opted instead for maintaining contact with Avianca Ops in Madrid. Since they were going to Madrid. Madrid. Kind of makes sense anyways. At 11.46, they contacted Madrid ATC to request descent while they were 107 miles out. They were authorized to descend and maintain 19,000 feet, and they confirmed they were leaving 37,000. They passed over Barahona. At 11.52, at which point they were cleared to further descend to 9,000 feet and to proceed directly to the CPL VOR. Based on the radar and crew conversation, the turn towards CPL happened three minutes after passing over Barona. What that bit of analysis left out, and the analysis I am now just skipping the rest over because they repeat the entire thing with more detail. Mm -hmm. What it left out was the difficulty that the crew had in programming that VOR. Yeah. At 11.51, just before passing through Barahona, the captain asked the co-pilot for the position, asking if he had entered the Castejon VOR, and the first officer says that it is Barahona and gives the wrong frequency for Barahona. The captain questioned it, gave the right frequency, and then noted that they were already passing over Barahona. According to the CVR, it seemed that they had selected the Castejon VOR and were headed for it. After this, approach control confirmed that they had passed through Barahona and were cleared to descend to 9,000 feet and to proceed to Charlie Papa Lima. The captain asked if the first officer had programmed them to Charlie Papa Lima, but the first officer tried to insert the VOR coordinates into the Inertial Navigation System, or INS, mm-hmm. but was having difficulty. So instead of, like, tuning to the frequency of the VOR, he's like, the VO- here's the coordinates for it. Let's plug that into the autopilot. Just a lot of fumbling here. 
The but first officer or the captain? The first officer. So mm-hmm. instead of using the frequency, he's trying to use the coordinates. Yes. Is there a specific reason for that? No, or? but he's also struggling with it. He is fumbling a lot at this point. So he's cap- fumbled like f- six times now. So the captain suggested that he would just set course for the VOR and ask for the frequency. The first officer responded, quote from the report, even if he gives the frequency, he does not select the VOR navigation system on the autopilot, so the plane follows its route to Castejon according to the INS instructions. The commander seems to doubt that the CPL location is not inserted in the INS, end quote. So I'm confused what's happening. Yeah, I, that makes me sufficiently confused. I don't know what's happening now. At 11.55, the aircraft begins to turn towards the Charlie Papa Lima VOR after the captain inserted its latitude and longitude data into the INS, as the first officer had previously tried to do. He successfully did it. I hope so, given he has like 23,000 hours of experience. Mm -hmm. So, going back to the first officer, sorry to interrupt you. Going back to the first officer, uh, can you remind me, how many hours does he have on this aircraft? Uh, He has 875. So he should know. Yeah. Right? Like, he shouldn't be struggling with this. No, he still has a decent amount of experience on the 747. Dude, I don't know. Okay. At 11.56, a cabin crew member came into the cockpit to inform the captain of the attention given to a passenger, which the captain responded to saying that the auxiliary crew will continue to work until Bogota. Huh? Yep. Yep. They were then transferred on the radio to approach control. This is not during a critical point of flight yet. No, but... We are descending. Yes. Why are they talking about... How does the passenger have to do with the crew? I don't understand. He just took that opportunity to tell the cabin crew member that the auxiliary crew will continue to work to Bogota. So, Which is why I'm like, is the deadheading crew the auxiliary crew? Yeah. Is, are you asking the cabin crew member to tell the auxiliary crew who's or deadheading? Or are they the auxiliary crew? Right. Do you see why I'm so confused? Okay. Yes. Ultimately, it's not really um, a factor. A factor, okay. Which is why I didn't go digging, try to figuring out what's what. Just but know that I'm confused and it's irrelevant. Yeah. It's yeah. not a factor, and I don't want to preface too much, but it is a sign. <laughs> An issue? At 11.57, a flight attendant entered again to confirm the information that the auxiliary crew, quote-unquote, continues to work until Bogota. Y- yes. Okay. We've already said that. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know why you had to come back here, but okay, cool. 45 seconds later, close to 9,000 feet. So whether or not they were in, like, um, sterile cockpit conditions, question? I don't know. The first officer began checking the ILS approach chart to runway 33, giving the airport elevation, and the captain said to set the marker. The first officer gave the final approach course and localizer frequency, which was confirmed by the captain. Sounds normal so far. Mm -hmm. The first officer indicated that the altitude of the marker crossing of the outer marker was 2,382 feet. This is where I asked Miranda to look at the approach chart, which, for the record, looks like garbage. It is a bit garbagey. Well, it's scanned in, so... Yes, but that and it's just the way that it was designed Wait, is have... garbagey. Did I have that pulled up on my phone? Yes, you did. Okay, so they label the outer marker as MA. Okay. So on the approach chart, there is a descent profile, and it gives the crossing altitude. He detailed it as 2,382 feet. Miranda, what does that say? Do I read the lower number? The one that starts with a three. Yeah, 3,282. Mm-hmm. These are not the same thing. Mm, one of these things is not like, like the yeah, other. You're correct. Is that for the inner marker? Outer that, marker. No, is he reading the one for the inner marker? Nope. Oh. And neither of them realized this error and no one ever corrected it. Did, and, did anybody look at the chart? I think he looked at the chart and maybe has dyslexia. Maybe. 
Dis- discount numeria is what it is, but yeah. Yeah. Point is, something went awry and no one caught it. So this would potentially cause the captain to continue his descent below the chart prescribed 3,282 feet without actually having reached the marker. So that's how you manage to descend below the ILS. That Someone's having a good time. Yeah, I guess. Um, so there's like the cause. This is where things went wrong. They're too low. They're, going, they're descending too low. Correct. Yes. Very much so. So they finished the descent checklist, commenting that they were ready for the ILS. Five minutes before impact, they set flaps to five degrees while at 7,500 feet and a speed of 245 knots. They were descending at 1,900 feet per minute and were 15 and a half miles from the VOR. Three minutes and 43 seconds before impact, they passed through 4,700 feet. About 20 seconds later, the first officer put in the localizer frequency and set the final approach course. He initially put in a heading of 330, but was corrected by the captain to put in 329. Yes, one degree difference. Yes. Whatever. Three minutes and three seconds before impact, they lowered the gear out of sequence. You're not supposed to do that until after you set flaps right. for 20. Yes, correct. But this was probably to reduce speed. Mm-hmm. They were at 4,100 feet, 208 knots, heading 222 degrees, and a descent rate of 273 feet per minute while seven miles out from the VOR. I will put it this way. They were well within limits for the landing gear. 13 seconds later, they were transferred to Barajas Tower, or Torre. Yep. They began turning to the right. They began turning while 5.8 miles from the VOR and turned towards the outer marker at a heading of 283.7 degrees, 3,802 feet of altitude. 165 knots of indicated airspeed and 4.8 miles from the VOR. Quote, the captain started to turn before reaching Charlie Papalima, probably because he no longer had a DME distance reference to Charlie Papalima, or because perhaps in the inertial navigation system, there could be an accumulated error, which makes him believe that he is closer to Charlie Papalima. The ambiguous position information given by control could help fix this idea or the possibility of some visual reference through two cloud layers, end quote. So he's turning before he's supposed to. Yep. Don't do that. They're in the clouds, right? Yep. Correct. That doesn't bode well. No, No. it does not. During the turn, the captain asked for the landing checklist except for the flaps. Why? I don't know. That's part of the landing checklist for a reason. I don't know. He has a plan in mind somewhere, and we just don't know what it is. After the first of five items on the checklist, the first officer made contact with the tower while the captain disconnected the autopilot. They were authorized to land on runway 33 and were given the wind data, though the crew only acknowledged the wind data and not the authorization to land. Two minutes and 29 seconds before impact, flaps were increased to 10 degrees. Two minutes and two seconds before impact, the autopilot was re-engaged. So he made the turn, turned off the autopilot. When he was done with the turn, he turned it back on. Okay. Yep. Sure. And a continuous descent from here began. Why? When the autopilot was reconnected, the captain either... Forgot to put the altitude mode selector in an altitude hold position, which would have been intelligent. Or he was prepared to reach the incorrectly stated 2,382 feet at the outer marker and was manually controlling the descent. Hard to tell one way or the other. Point is, too low. This FDR did not have enough data to determine one way or the other. No. Nowadays, FDRs record hundreds of parameters. Yes, including all control inputs, manual control inputs. This only had 64. Right. This one was very limited. Two minutes before impact, the first officer put the autopilot in the ILS mode and put the autopilot stick A in command and asked if that's how the captain wanted it, which the captain confirmed. 16 seconds later, the first officer conveyed that the autopilot will stay in heading mode until it's hooked, which the captain confirmed. There was a sound of the captain doing something with the autopilot before the first officer said it's hooked. 
I'm assuming they think they've captured the ILS. Right. By hooked, they mean yeah, captured. Yeah, 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 yeah. Six seconds later, the captain asked if the markers were in the A de Fs. <laughs> I don't know. In the ADFs? That doesn't make sense. Nope. I, I, I'm... See, I would need more context to even figure out what he's trying to say. I know, and it's all in Spanish. Right. Maybe he said this because he was not seeing what he expected to see on the instruments, or he was confirming that they were indeed heading for the outer marker, but there was no audible response from anyone in the cockpit. The first officer then discussed how they were going to maintain symmetrical reverse thrust on landing since the number one engine reverser was inoperative. Oh, that's nice. So because of that, they couldn't operate one of the thrust reversers on the other wing. Something we've talked about in the past, not a big deal in the end, but only is if you make it a big deal. 46 seconds before impact, the captain called for 20 degrees of flaps. It was set. 37 seconds before impact, the first officer said that the localizer seems to be wrong. Wait. Now, he's suddenly realizing something is amiss. Uh, but where, where, okay, where are they now, like, altitude-wise? Low. Very low. Lower than they ought to be. S- like, close to impact, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. We're, we're 37 seconds before impact. Why is the GPWS not going off? Just wait. It does. Just you wait. Okay. So nothing further was said while the first officer tried to figure out what was happening. Maybe, like, on the verge of realizing the 2,382 feet versus the 3,282 feet error. Don't know if his brain ever actually caught up with him, because then the ground proximity warning system went off. But he did realize something was wrong. Yes. He realized that they were not positionally where they should be. Exactly what he said was, el localizador parece que si está, está mal, espero. Mm-hmm. It seems bad. Yeah. Yes. Like, wait, this is wrong. Yeah. Something's wrong. So yeah, the ground proximity warning system went off 14 seconds before impact. The captain responded by saying, okay, okay, calmly, without taking corrective action. Mm. Five seconds later, he said good when disconnecting the autopilot, which slightly decreased their descent rate of 1,250 feet per minute. One second before impact, the first officer said, what does the terrain say, commander? Maybe as a reminder that the captain actually, I don't know, needed to do something. But that was one second before impact, so there was nothing they could do at that point. No, they impacted at 139 knots, indicated vertical speed of 1,016 feet per minute descent and an altitude of 2,249 feet. The only reason that anybody really could have survived this was because they were moving quite slow, all things considered. I mean, they were on approach. Yeah, 139 knots, though, is like absolute final approach speed, pretty much, for that airplane. Mm -hmm. So they were moving very, very slow by that point. They weren't far from the airport, to be fair. Like, they, they were not. 12 kilometers sounds like a lot, but it's not. <laughs> not to a 47. No. They right, managed so. to say some things after the first impact. Actually, after the second impact, the captain said, A ver, APA. APA? Autopilot something? I don't know. And then the last word was the first officer trying to say commander or comandante. Yeah. And that did not go well. No. Okay, so the last bit of analysis I have was regarding the air traffic control performance, which was deemed to have imprecise communications on both the part of ATC as well as the crew. When approach cleared the flight for approach, they did not specify the type of approach. Mm-hmm. Mm. They should have said cleared for the ILS. Yeah. They never actually did. I said they cleared them for the ILS because that's what they were doing. But that's but not I what I never said. clarified in the story that that is not what was said. They also didn't mention the altitude of the initial fixed point of the approach. Though the latter isn't necessarily required, it is definitely mandatory to specify the type of approach in case of radio failure or weather limitations. 
the lack of specified type of approach was assumed as the that the captain had the option. Or at least that's how it is colloquially assumed. Mm-hmm. Or was colloquially assumed. That right. is not how that goes down. When the crew reported reaching 9,000 feet, approach control responded, received, approach is cleared, continue descent. Once again, they did not specify the approach type nor the altitude of the initial fixed point of approach. They also didn't ask the crew to notify when they passed that point. When the handoff from approach to tower transpired, the approach controller said Avianca 011 approaching Charlie Papa Lima, continue approaching Barajas 33 and Torre 1815, which was an ambiguous and imprecise position report. Yes, it was. It should have specified nautical miles to Charlie Papa Lima instead of just saying approaching. Overall, communications between the aircraft and air traffic control did not give or request position information like ever. Investigators also deemed that either the approach controller was not paying attention to the screen or the radar signal was not reliable enough to notice the aircraft's deviation in course and altitude, so they did not alert the crew to their error. Right. Yeah, that's slight, That's a slight problem. Yes. Because they could have seen that they were descending past MDA. Right. And they, as is in most cases with CFIT, did not impact anything, any kind of structure on the ground. Nobody no. was there. Because they were actually out over a field area, basically an empty space, which is pretty fortunate, but at the same time, not. Because had there been maybe city lights... They, they probably would have visually seen how low they were. Yeah. One would hope anyways. And just to clarify, they were on the correct path. Yes. They were heading into the airport. They were. They were They were set to intercept the outer marker. Right. They were on the correct ILS path. They were just well below the glide. Zone. I know that seemed kind of ambiguous at some points. Or are we actually flying towards the outer marker? Yes, yeah, you were. were. You were just um a, a little low. Yep. A little? Like 900 feet low. Yep. Or programmed for 900 feet low. Whatever. Right. Uh, very close to where this accident happened. It's still a field, by the way. There's hardly anything there. It's a farm field. Some. Um, you mentioned the name of it included Campos. Yeah. It... Campos means field. Right. But there's an actual town with that name, and that town is here, but the accident was there. It's still a field. So there's a town, field, and there's the runways for the airport. So. Yeah, because sometimes we talk about how stuff changes after accidents. Right. Now, mind you, one of them was runway 33. It was only runway 33. Now there's a 32 left, 32 right. Mm. But, so things have changed. But they were inbound for runway 33. Gotcha. And this is where the accident happened. And really close to where the accident happened is now a small RC club for RC airplanes. Oh. Accident, RC airport. Okay. That's a choice. Club Orion RC. So the name of the town was Mejorada del Campo, mm-hmm. which means improved field. Cool. The improved field, that is because it is now a town instead of a field. Yes. It's still a field. The, the town itself has a lot of buildings and apartments. It's, it's a very busy place. Had they been there, I'm sure they would have noticed how close they were to the ground. But they were a few kilometers to the right of that. You also have to keep in mind that architecturally we've gotten worse at putting lights and i say that that way because we keep putting lights that show to the sky right which is great for pilots it's like oh look that's such and such town that's really bad for light pollution yeah it is so we need to stop doing that if any architects are listening to this or any city planners stop doing that yeah there are specific light designs that reduce light pollution please use those i like to see the stars thank you but they do also have to light up roadways and... You can do that without wasting light skyward. Yes. 
Go look it up. There are light oh, pollution know. reducing light posts. Yes, there are. And sconces and crap mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the lights on 225 at night that do nothing. Yes. It's actually, sorry, tangential. Actually relevant, sort of. So in my Spanish 4 class in high school, mm-hmm. where I developed all of my wonderful Spanish skills, I had to do a report fully in Spanish on light pollution. That's okay. Weird, that's a weird thing to do it a is. Spanish report on. It is a really random thing. We, we had to basically prove the extent of our vocabulary. Okay. Do I remember how to say light pollution in Spanish? No. Cool. But, uh, yeah, so they're tangential, somewhat relevant. Anyway, stop polluting the sky. <laughs> Anyways. I'm sorry. It's fine. <laughs> I'm trying to fill space now. It's okay. Fine. Well, if that's all you got, we'll take a break. Yes. We'll come back and Nick will do all the stuffy stuff. I will. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Okay, we're back. All right. There are a handful of findings or conclusions, as it is in here. I'm going to go through these. Most of them are actually pretty short. By uh, the way, these are run through Google Translate. Yes, these are run through Google Translate. So they are going to be maybe a mess. And that's okay. We'll just deal with it as we go. The, the translations are actually not entirely terrible. Yeah, because it's a Latin-based language, and, it, and Google Translate yes. can kind of handle that. And of all Latin-based languages, it is Spanish, which is generally the one that they work the hardest on in terms of translation. If something seems wrong, I'll go look at the original and maybe translate it better. It's fine. No promises. The first handful are all what you would imagine. This was fine, and that was fine. There was nothing wrong with the plane other than... Certified, 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 ratified, certified, everything's good. Except that it wasn't. Except the one thrust reverser for some reason. Yeah, whatever. Those were probably bucket reversers, right? Uh, No. No. They were Then how would you be able to have an in-operated... It just doesn't work. It doesn't separate properly. So how would you... I mean, I guess this is a four-engineer craft. So So what they do is just tie it shut so that it can't be used. Anyways. And then they would just not use the one on engine number four. So it's just engines two and three doing thrust reverse. That way it's symmetric. Oh, uh, yeah. Because yeah. that, that's what was breaking my brain. But on this happens still on like Airbuses and Boeing. Two engines. On 737s where like dual engine aircraft where they have the separating ones and they just won't use one side. They'll use the other. And you just have to counteract that with the controls and just make sure you do it properly and you also don't usually use full thrust reverse for that so you don't overdo it redo your math a little bit so yep. you have a better approach speed and yep again most of these things at the beginning were all very much nothing none of this was problems everything was certified okay you know that they found that between barahona and the beginning of the turn towards the outer marker the crew did not carry out the appropriate procedures therefore navigating incorrectly pretty straightforward They found that the crew flew below the MDA for more than one minute before entering the Charlie Papa Lima protection zone. I don't know where the protection zone is. I don't know what MDA is. We couldn't find any of that information, which is weird, but... So the the investigators included in the appendices, they included the approach chart. And you look at it and you're like, oh, I can totally read that. And you zoom in, you're like, never mind, I can't read any of that. Yeah. 
MDA is not made clear, but we do know that they flew below it, obviously. I think it's 4,000 feet. It would make sense. Yes, that would make sense. But I don't know. I don't read approach For those charts. of you who are new here, MDA is minimum, minimum descent, descent altitude. altitude. You're right. not supposed to descend below it until you can see the runway. You have the ILS. Right. Or in this case, there's a protection zone around the VOR that you're allowed to then descend. Right. Is that detailed on the approach chart? No. No? Right. So. Or if it is, it's done poorly and I can't read it. And that's fair. Also, I would like to complain about this approach chart. <laughs> it's in too many languages. Yes. It's translated. Multiple ways. Things like this don't happen anymore. They're all English. They Thank you. They have to be. ICAO. That's it. They found that the crew lowered the landing gear out of sequence, they did it early, in accordance with the ILS approach procedures, and before starting the turn towards the outer marker. So it's strange, but they were required to lower their landing gear per the, the approach procedures. So that's part of why it was weirdly out of sequence compared to the flaps. So to clarify why things like that happen, because it's actually common anywhere you're going to have hills or mountains or anything in the way, the... Theory is, one, to slow you down, and two, you'll see that they do it over mountainous areas where they're dealing with lots of turbulence or doing a low approach, things like that, because it, it gives you a better buffer, supposedly, and a higher likelihood of survival should you hit something, but that obviously... Didn't happen. Didn't work. It is why they bounced, though, because it struck the landing gear first. So, it kind of did. So, Save the airplane. So 11 people lived instead right. of none. Right. Pretty much. Well, and they got flung from the aircraft. Yes. Most of them did. Two of them just walked out. Yep. I don't want to say walked as in like... That's what they said. I'm okay. Yeah. But they weren't okay. Right. <laughs> they were injured. They were just able to get out. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a whole thing. Do you know by chance where they were sitting? Not a clue. It didn't say in any of my part, but maybe you have it. Did you look in the pathological? No. Section? Mm-mm. Medical and pathological. Inf- oh, and there's a rescue and survival section. Sometimes That would sur- be the important thing. Sometimes they have survivability aspects. Yes. Once the study was carried out on the positions occupied by the surviving passengers, it was found that nine were thrown out of the plane, in some cases along with their seats, and two of them, according to their statements, left the aircraft by their own means. All of them had serious injuries, basically cranioencephalic trauma, brain trauma, they hit their head. And some, despite having been thrown of the aircraft by their own inertia, suffered burns. They were still in the explosion zone. From the studies carried out, it was possible to verify that 35% of the victims died as a result of the fire, 30% due to polytraumatisms, and the rest due to a combined action of disability caused by traumatisms and inhalation of toxic gases. That's fire. Yeah. So even if some of them did survive like after the accident, they did not last very long, unfortunately, because the... Fire. Apparently, the flight engineer was self-medicating on midozapan. Okay. The heck is midozapan? I don't know. It's the first time I'm reading it. Let's look it up. Midozapan. It's probably some weird. Did you mean midazapan? <laughs> I don't know. Did we? Probably now, not. Whatever it's written in the report is what it actually is because medoza- medications have so many similar things. Midozapan. What? Google cried. Cool. It it asked, "Do you mean marzipan?" No. I was going to say, it sounds like marzipan. <laughs> Distinctly no, not that. Which has been determined as a component of some type of minor tranquilizer. Oh my god, what? Cool. Well, he wasn't the one flying the airplane. So? <laughs> yeah, 
but he is the one monitoring stuff. Yeah, which none of that monitoring mattered, but... I love how they're like, we did a study on the position of the people who survived. I'm like, great, where, where? were they? See- I'm guessing rearward. I'm guessing they were toward the rear. I'm guessing it is- that when it separated, they were thrown over the fuselage, the forward portion where that had hit. Because that's usually what happens. Uh-huh. And they ended so- up burned because they ended up forward where the fuel tanks were exploding so and burning. So here's the salvage and survival section. It is possible to verify that the passengers were wearing their seatbelts and that they resisted the forces generated by the impact. The wounds that most of the corpses presented indicate that they were produced by the top and side of the passenger cabin due to the inverted position with which the aircraft collided with the ground on in the last impact. Right, so it had struck, struck, inverted. Yep. And impacted. As the fire broke out instantly with the consequent generation of toxic fumes, it is possible that it prevented the survival of some passengers located in the central area of the fuselage. The survivors, except for two who apparently got out under their own power, were thrown from the aircraft. These survivors were immediately evacuated by the vehicles of the public order forces, which first accessed the accident site. To rescue the corpses... To remove, I would assume. The heavy cranes had to be used to remove the remains of the fuselage in which they had been imprisoned imprisoned i hate google translate so much right now yes it did not make any of that sound nice can you just tell me where the survivors were sitting i want to my know. guess is, is they don't know or they didn't put it specifically you know i, I was thinking specifically about you know how sometimes they had the seat map mm-hmm. that shows you mm-hmm. clearly this did not have a seat map no it did not i was just curious because yeah. i'm also curious and now i want to know okay well you can keep searching for it, Nick can continue. I'm gonna continue with my findings. Maybe it's in the tests and investigations. No, because that section is like two sentences. No, then it's not that. They ruled out turbulence. Yes. And mountain waves. Yes. It's the middle of the night. Are there even mountains? Mm-hmm. A lot, actually. Their definition of mountains are different than well, our definition yes. of mountains. They're hills, but it surrounds the entirety of Madrid. Anyways. They found that the crew turned towards the outer marker and continued their flight until impact, without checking the distance to the Charlie Papalino VOR, nor having captured any signal from the ILS approach system, leaving only the ADF markings. Well, that's what they were saying about the... I don't know. I don't know what... So they were using an ADF frequency to get somewhere as a backup, but they never actually captured the ILS, which you kind of noticed. Yeah. And... Or they got a false... They were not checking their distance to the Charlie Papalima VOR, so they shouldn't. They didn't know where they were in relation to it per descent. And the captain started to notice that, too. They found that the captain accepted, without verifying on his part, the erroneous altitude of passing the outer marker given by the first officer. I mean, why would he think about it, though? If the officer was looking at the chart, he was. why would he think to check it? Right, putting his trust in that port having been done correctly, except that we know that the first officer was fumbling with everything he did for some reason. He just wasn't on his game that day. Right. They found that the captain did not take the proper corrective action when the GPWS, Ground Proximity Warning System, alerted. What is, should they hit the toga switch? They no. should climb. But well, they should yes, climb. They should climb. I was just I mean, you add what power. specifically. Yeah, you add power and you begin climbing. No matter what, as soon as you hear that, you assume climb. That's it. In the modern day... We have the, what do you call it? Not the, or synthetic vision, that's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. We have synthetic vision in most aircraft these days. Yeah, because it can show you the surrounding terrain. Right. And it'll give you like a, a red, yellow, green as to how close you are in terms of altitude. So 
as you're approaching things, it'll show it on the screen in front of you. And if it's yellow or red, that means that it is within a very close or deadly altitude to you should you continue to fly at it. It's like your backup camera on your car. Right. Starts beeping at you if you get too close. Right. And so in in previous forms of the ground proximity warning system, it's as simple as you add power and you climb. But what we can do with synthetic vision now is also add turns to that. Should you not be able to climb away from it in time, you may be able to turn away from it, which is also a factor. Unless and it's a whole mountain. Yeah, I mean, it's still possible, but it depends on... Or you got yourself stuck in a valley. Yes. Like an idiot. Yes. But that still would have only told them if they had one, a GPWS, it would have only told them terrain, and they wouldn't have had a clue had they not be able to see it. You know, if they could turn away from it, which is the same instance here, like they didn't know if they could turn away the only instruction. But they didn't do a damn thing other than disconnect autopilot. Yeah, they didn't do anything. They kept descending. Right. Why you thought that was... Whatever. I feel like a lot of stuff was happening, and it, to me, it sounds like the captain was a little overstimulated. A lot I would say were, so. A lot of things were happening at once, yeah. and it did not bode well for them. Yeah. It, it feels like, to me, there's just so much going on that... This is where the CRM piece is really critical, that you learn your role in the cockpit and things, because he was getting overwhelmed at a critical point of flight. On top of that... The first officer was making a series of mistakes that he was having to correct, and that's adding to the workload. First, the flight engineers passed out because he is on a I mean, none of these things are his duty, anyways. But yes, he's. But he's, we've had times where we've talked about flights that crash that the flight engineers like, dude, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Because yeah. they, I mean, though they don't fly the plane, they understand. They're there all the time and yeah. they know the systems. Yeah. So, yes. And he was the most experienced of everyone on this plane. And he's yes. hardly ever mentioned. Yeah. No, he didn't come up at all. Yeah, because he was sleeping. He was on a tranquilizer. <laughs> a mild tranquilizer yes. that I that the internet is like, I'm not sure that actually exists. Maybe it translated it wrong. Nothing anywhere stated that he was doing a bad Rugs. job. Well, that he was doing a bad <laughs> Yeah, he was. I don't know if he was doing dry, but nothing anywhere stated that he was doing a bad job. He was never a factor in this accident. No, not not that he would be. I. It's just like I can just imagine like this person just like zoning out in the back. Yeah. Despite everything going on, if he was on, if he was, you know, dosing himself with minor tranquilizers. Yes. You you're, you're furrowing. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. I looked up Medozapan with the accent and some things came up. Okay. One of them is a video on YouTube about the crash. Okay. That mentions that he had so, taken Medozapan. What we know about this medication is it, it, it was involved with his accident, but it seems like the world seems to have forgotten everything else about it. Knows nothing about it, except that it mysteriously was somehow or at also... at least Google doesn't know anything yes. about it. It was somehow mysteriously taken by this... It might not be available anymore. No, I'm sure not. Most medications don't last. Maybe it's midazepam. That's what I thought you said. Maybe it's just like a Spanish version of it. Yeah. Or they're just... But I always say with medications, always write exactly what it says because things can look very similar and be completely different medications. That's true. So midazepam acts as a prodrug to diazepam as well as nordazepam Cool. I don't know Tamazepam what any of that oxazepam. is. <laughs> See, they all sound for? similar, but I that means understand. they're all different things. 
Benzodiazepines, including midazepam, increase the inhibitory processes in the cerebral cortex by allosteric modulation of the GABA receptor. Cool. Oh, they're beta blockers. Yeah. That's what they are. Cool. Well, okay, if he was on that, that's not a minor tranquilizer. It just means it's making him less nervous. Hopefully. Hold on. Musicians use beta blockers all the time. Yes. Cool. Cool. All right. of that is Greek to me. It's a, it's a depressant. Oh. Okay. Yeah, so he was on He's a beta. Still, he was on a beta blocker. Yeah, it can slow your functioning a little bit, but that is a whole thing that is currently very um, contentious. Yes, won't get into that right this second. Go look on TikTok. There's loads of there's someone things about who this. has been denied his pilot's license and his ability to fly because he had a history of anxiety. He was already a like 13 years ago. Yeah, he who was already a commercial pilot, like a, an airline pilot. They took his job. They took it away from him. The FAA took it away from him because they found out that he had been on an antidepressant at one time. That's stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want them to be on antidepressants. You would think. Or we have issues like German wings. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. whole very, very, very big discussion. Okay. This was... Here. Sorry to get sidetracked again, but... Anyone want to tell me what midozapan actually is? Yes, because it could uh, be there's, something there's different. One of our listeners listened to the whole thing that I did on an autopsy. Do you know what it is? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know, remember your name. I know it's you. I know you're a person who listens to that stuff and knows things. It's a whole contentious <laughs> subject right now. I feel like they, they're going to need to have a hearing at some point to be like, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable? We, they, need to re- we need to reevaluate this whole thing. What they need to have... With mental health professionals. Is a lot of hearings about it. Because they need to have real discussions about these things and not assumptions. Because we don't want depressed pilots. (laughs) No. Or anxious pilots. Or anxious pilots. What we really don't want are depressed and anxious pilots that aren't saying anything about it. And aren't getting treated for it. Because they don't believe they should because it will keep them from having their license. Which is stupid. And you know what's only going to make you more depressed and anxious? Losing your job. Yeah. Because yes. you're depressed and anxious. Yeah. Yes. It's it's a cyclical Come thing. Come on, FAA. Get your together. The whole Jesus world. Christ. It's the whole world of aviation. It's a whole problem. Anyways. Can you fly commercially while on ADHD meds? No. Probably not. No. As a matter of fact, with those medications, you're not really supposed to fly at all. See, once again, something that should really fix those problems is deemed hmm, a problem. Like, you, you can't fly with it. Notably, pharmacological treatments for ADHD are not approved for flying because they can cause harmful effects on perceptual, motor, and cognitive functions and impair the recognition of fatigue. Okay. And what I always say about this is you should have a period, a test or a trial period for yourself, and if you prove that it does not affect your functioning in terms of motor function, physical functioning, then it should be allowed to be used. But it should not be an assumption that is put into place and blanketed over everyone. Yeah. That you cannot, it's, this is a whole discussion. It's a whole thing. I can see the impairment of recognition of fatigue being a problem, though. Yes. That one's a big one. But, generally, you're still going to figure out when you're tired. Mm, some people who take Adderall, they, they don't, nope. Especially, That's why they take Adderall. Yeah. Anyways, back to the thing now. They found that the ACC, or the center controller, basically, Transferred the aircraft to the approach control at a different place and time than agreed is what they wrote, but basically a different place and time than what is normal. So this happened at a non-standard time for this flight, which they noted this, but to me it's kind of like, okay, 
And? and yeah. How did this affect anything? It didn't. I don't it, think it, it did. I it, don't know why they pointed out. Right. It can add to some confusion. I think they're more trying to point out like, oh, the air traffic controllers are setting themselves up for failure because they just don't follow their processes and procedures properly. I think that's the only thing they're really getting at with that. But they don't clearly state that, nor does this transfer from the center controller to the approach controller have anything to do with the accident at all, nor does it matter. It's just maybe their non-standard procedure? I don't know. Which you can also do. Yeah. Usually. They found that the approach controller, when carrying out the traffic transfer, did not give a precise position reference neither to the tower nor to the aircraft. Okay. It's generally still on the aircraft to report their exact position. Because usually they have the more accurate information. The air traffic controller still has decent information, should they have radar. But that's a whole thing. But it also wasn't prompted from the crew either. No. But typically when they were doing a handover, at least at the time, yes, they should be providing position information, reference, things like that. This has since changed a lot because radar has changed a lot. Now we got really nice advanced radars. Yes, and all of it's automated. You don't have to communicate most of this stuff over verbally. Also, most towers don't use paper strips anymore. No. No, it's all digital. They found that the approach controller transferred the aircraft to the tower controller without having received confirmation from the crew that they had intercepted any approach aid or had visual reference. Which, I can agree, this part is maybe a factor and a problem in the accident. Because what they're saying, actually, the tower, what I can't figure out is if the tower had very good radar. We couldn't figure that part out. I could not figure that part out. Whether or not the tower in Madrid had decent radar or radar I mean, at it was, all? this was 1983. You so would think they would, but... I, they'd if, have at least basic radar. Right, but But that's basic the radar thing. doesn't convey altitude, and that was the thing... Altitude, speed, anything that like out. that. Right. And so, to that end, the approach controller actually did have radar contact and good radar contact and knew all this information. So, the approach controller... This is, this is why this is important. The approach controller isn't supposed to hand off the aircraft to the tower until he has confirmed with the flight crew that they are established on the ILS in order to help them avoid situations like what happened. Got it. And And that did not occur. Investigators didn't really go into how the crew thought that they had the ILS. Right. But we've discussed false ILS returns before. Yes. I think that was the Crosshair episode. Well, oh, mm-hmm. And I've covered one where they thought they caught the glide slope. But they never did. It's, and they never did. It, it was one of the Zurich mm-hmm. ones, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think so. Mine um, was Korean Air, the one that hit the hill in Guam. Yes. Which is referenced on this Wikipedia page. Yes. Yeah. Because they had... Also CV, also 747. That was kind of weird because the ILS. glide slope was in op. Right. And... They thought it was, but it wasn't. And right. the DME was away from the airport. It was like a whole thing. Um, yeah, <laughs> you should yeah. li- if you don't know what we're talking about. I did a Miranda note on it like two years ago. Um, yep. So you should be a patron and check that out because I did a whole episode twice. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> that was one of the ones we lost. Yep. Uh, it sure was about how and like that was like right when we started talking about navigational stuff too. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like a lot. So yeah, you can check that out there. I'm trying to figure out what episode it was. But anyway, you can have false glide slopes often at 9 degree and 12 degree angles, but also underneath the correct glide slope because it's it's something about it being a multiple of three. I don't remember the Mm -hmm. exact mechanism, Mm -hmm. but that could have been why they intercepted or thought they had hooked the glide slope. Yes, 
yes. even though they hadn't. And they were starting to figure that out. Right. Two more findings or conclusions. They found that the approach controller did not maintain proper radar vigilance as he had not notified the aircraft radar service terminated. So when he when they did leave the radar service area, basically, of the approach controller, mm-hmm. he did not notify them that they had done so, which he should. They always should. This is still standard. If you leave the radar area, you just say radar service is terminated, or in other instances is where like you have gone into visual uh, conditions. conditions, which why he would have said radar service is terminated specifically, and this is not saying he, that they flew outside the area in any latitude. It's because they dropped below the altitude that yes. his radar could read. At which point his radar would have which is dropped the point. A good portion of time when we talk about because we've also sorry, sorry. <laughs> we have also talked about flights that have dropped off of radar before mm-hmm. when they're landing or even mid-flight, and yes. usually it's because they're too low. Right, the altitude's too low for the radar to catch their transmitter anymore. Right. So, but that tells me that they had pretty advanced. Yes. Radar yeah, the, then the approach controller did. The tower, we don't know. Oh, the tower is the one we don't know. Right. So the approach controller is the critical one here who should have noted that they went too low and should have said radar service is terminated. And that should have also been a sign like you have gone out. Like you are yeah, way too yeah, low. <laughs> you should be on my radar. Right. But basically the assumption made or what the investigators found is that there was an assumption made by the approach controller that once the aircraft was too low, rather than saying radar services terminated, he just automatically transferred them to the tower, thinking, oh, they're on the approach. I can't see them anymore. It's their problem now. Yeah, you know what we said and that was assumptions. A, yep, and that was a bad thought, basically. And they point that out. They point That's why they point this out. And the last one, also important. They found that the phraseology and communications procedures used, both by controllers and the crew, did not conform to those recommended by the ICAO. Also, they spoke in Spanish the whole time. I understand that they are both Spanish-speaking entities, but you yes. should not do that. Yes, and this speaking was, English. This was still part of the ICAO's like change was still happening for that, where English was becoming the standard worldwide. Now, Russia's still kind of the... <laughs> I, but we even talk about some African countries. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, they were speaking in French, or they were speaking... And I understand when it's, like, really critical communication, sometimes you have to switch to your native tongue so that you can get it out. Yeah. But... Mm, what happens if the ATC controller doesn't speak your native tongue, though? Right, then, Like, yeah, that's, the, that's the problem. Right. So, English is still supposed to be the standard, and they're supposed to be using standard phraseology is well, the important thing. And that there. was the other issue, because we were talking about when Christy was reading through the non-translated report, mm-hmm. is they used a lot of Spanglish, they used a lot of slang. Yep. You can't do that, because then if something like this happens, yeah. it's, it's harder confusing. for them to figure out. Well, and you also have to keep in mind that Spanish in Spain is different than Latin American Very. Spanish. Yes. So they were speaking different, practically different languages. I mean, they Not weren't... that far. They weren't, but... There were some differences that could occur that but they could have had miscommunications. There's a whole pronoun in Spanish, in Spain Spanish, that they don't use in Latin American Spanish. Right. Not that that was a factor here, but it could be a factor in the future. That, like, if you use vosotros when talking to someone from Latin America, they're like, excuse me? Yeah. What that? Yes, you're correct. Also, Spain Spanish, they got they got that lisp, and that does not... Sound good over radio. Yep. No. 
You, you want to know how to get confused? That's that, how. That's how. Anyways, that's all of the findings. Oh, my turn. Yes, your turn. So, keep in mind, this is translated. Yes. The cause of the accident was that the commander, without having precise knowledge of his position, went to intercept the ILS with an incorrect trajectory without starting the published instrument approach maneuver, descending below all the safety margins of the area until colliding with the ground. Contributing factors. A. Imprecise navigation of the crew, which led them to an incorrect position to start the approach maneuver. B. Lack of corrective action in accordance with the operating instructions of the ground proximity warning system by the crew. C. Insufficient teamwork in the cabin. <clears throat> CRM. Yep. D. Inaccurate position information given to the aircraft by approach control. E. The approach controller not having communicated radar service terminated to the aircraft did not maintain a correct observation of the radar screen. That's why they blame ATC for this one, too. But I agree that it's a contributing factor, but it yes. is not the cause. No, it's not. It's interesting, though, that they pin most of it on the captain. Because technically it is still his aircraft. He was still in charge of it. And because CRM was still a new thing, it was still a little bit more captain's law. So to that end, the captain really not really necessarily takes the blame, but is perhaps more responsible for being in such a a bad situation because CRM broke down, because he got overwhelmed, because they were navigating poorly. Like they were using just rather than using exact points and following exact procedures, they were kind of cutting corners Flying direct to... Literally, they cut out an entire waypoint. Yes. They literally cut a corner. Right. And which changes then your descent profile, and it changes your entrance to the approach. And there's all sorts of things that that does, and that's why it was an issue, because then they ended up in a different place at a different time than they would have had they followed the approach procedure the way it's written. That's why it's kind of important to follow these procedures, because they're designed a specific way so that everything goes correctly. And it's thoughtless if you follow it, basically. It's pretty much idiot-proof, quote-unquote, if you follow it correctly. Now, that's not to say that aircraft don't still cut corners today. They do, but usually there are procedures for that, and there's very specific ways you can do that safely. And usually, if you're going to do it, you're going to request two radar vectors from the ATC. So, that's the probable cause. So now we're going to do... The very few recommendations. These will not stun anyone, nor are they anything we haven't talked about before. They are important, and it was still a very important thing because this was a very large accident in Spain, and their large accidents get a lot of attention. So they obviously needed to do something about that, especially since this was only a handful of years after Tenerife, and it was another 747. They recommend that in all communications, the phraseology recommended by the ICAO must be used disregarding ambiguous terms, both in position and in altitudes or levels. Just use ICAO phraseology. No shock there. It's there for a reason. Yeah. Basically, they they were taking this to Spain and saying, standardize that. And as well as to Avianca, because they're not a Spanish airline, they are Colombian, and saying, standardize it. They recommend reiterating and instructing the technical crews that they must strictly follow the rules and operating procedures working as a team, or CRM, comply with the established cross-checks, and that they must not descend from the published safety levels of the MDAs. So that one is pretty straightforward. It's pretty much CRM in a nutshell, which was still very much a a new kind of thing at the time. Concept, yes. 
But that's really what this was, was reiterating, like, CRM really has to be a thing to avoid accidents. It, yep. it has to, for to avoid errors like this. And yet the 80s were packed full of them. Yes, they still had lots of Woo, 80s accidents. was like the worst decade for aviation accidents. It was one of the worst, yeah. Uh, it had one of the worst years. Yes. 1985. Yes, it did. Not that the 70s or 60s were much better, although there was just less airplanes. Okay, but that was the deadliest year. Yes. But there were less airplanes in the 60s and 70s to have accidents with. Yes. That's why. The 80s was a very rapid expansion of aviation. They recommend reminding crews that navigation in terminal control areas must rely on radioelectric and ground aids and fix their position with their distance meters. Okay. All of this is just poorly translated. When they exist. The distance meters. Yes. <laughs> And not on the aircraft's autonomous systems. Except when the aircraft is guided by radar vectors, the approach maneuvers must begin by flying over their starting point, adjusting to the published charts, i.e. don't skip a corner. But this is a poorly written way of saying follow the approach procedures, follow the procedures that are written. Follow the yellow brick road. And they should rely on the navigational instruments to do so and... Not always on the automated systems, although I would argue that actually we rely on them perhaps more now, but we do it because we have designed these approaches and the systems to do it automatically with oversight, which is really the crew's responsibility and not what they were doing here. They recommend reiterating and instructing controllers that they must strictly follow the rules and regulated operating procedures, especially in transfers, identification, and provision of radar service to aircraft. Just follow the ATC procedures. Just don't, do your job. Don't God. get lazy. Don't get lazy. Which we've, we've talked about this a lot. I feel like we've talked about this a lot lately. But we've also talked about this a lot, period. Where ATC just, you have your own set of procedures too, and they're very there for a reason. Like, it's very specific for a reason. They recommend that the technical crews, this would, I, I assume when they say technical crews, they're talking flight crews. Because that's usually what this is in reference to. I recommend that the technical crews should be well instructed in the use of the GPWS, the ground practice uh, warning yeah. system, and on the immediate actions to take when receiving their alarm notices or their alerts. I don't know why when you hear whoop, whoop, terrain, pull up, you wouldn't, I don't know. Pull up. <laughs> Add it's, power, pull up. It's in the instructions. It's, it's yelling at you. It is telling you that for a reason. So... That that particular alarm more than any, because when it says, like, bank angle, it doesn't tell you what to do. When it says sink rate, it doesn't tell you what to do. Nope. But when it says terrain, yep. it specifically tells you what to do. Yes, it does. And that's it. Wow. And that's it. There you go. It's pretty straightforward. It was an unfortunate series of things that have since very much changed in aviation, CRM, namely, that could have made this accident avoidable. Yeah. As well as standard procedures with ATC standard communications, things like that. Things that honestly were already pretty much in place. They just really needed to reinforce all of it because this accident pretty much forewent all of it. Because it turns out there are still the dumbs. Sometimes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, thanks for listening. Yes. You appreciate it. Uh, you should do all the stuffs like uh, checking out the patron page. Yes. Uh, where you can find a post-episode for this episode. And a bunch of other post episodes and a bunch of other stuff. Yes. So you should like go check that out or something. It's like cool or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's like cool or whatever. Or whatever. Or whatever. I mean, Do whatever you, you want. You don't have to, but 
I'm telling you, you probably should. You can do whatever, but uh, do it anyway. But uh, but whatever, you know, you, you can do you can do what you want. You yeah. do you. But will. but it would be better if you did. But but you know, you, you do you. Yeah, you do. You know, you you, <laughs> you live your you live your life. You live you live your life. I'm sure it's the best life for you. But 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 it would be better if you did more. Yeah. Anyway. You should do that. <laughs> uh, or buy some merch. Like we have yeah. really cool merch. We do. Do we have PJs yet? Dude, I don't know. You gotta check it. Check the website. See if it's sold out. I uh, keep trying well, to get PJs, PJs. and uh, they keep getting their current the the makers of our our printing company. The people who would print them do not have them in stock, or yeah. they haven't haven't had them for a while. So all that to say, yeah, no, really though, thank you just for listening, and it, yeah, I mean, just just listening is great. Yes, thank you, thanks for that because. Believe us, we would be have quit this a long time ago if we yes. didn't have enough listeners. But we have passed 200 episodes, and we have new big things coming because this is those big things do not include pajamas. No, no, but they could Lame. include pajamas. <sighs> um, makes me mad. We will announce the winners of the giveaway eventually. Soon. Um, the giveaway does not include pajamas. No, it does not include no, does pajamas. Not. But it does include a mug, and it didn't us. Uh, Sign mug? I don't know if it's a sign mug, but it is a signed what about the ornament. ornament. Yes, the ornament. There's a mug, an ornament, and a duck. Duck. Yep. A bigger duck than what yes, we Yes, a special duck. And Paige and Caitlin will also sign said duck. So Yes. So thank you so much. We do appreciate it. And, you know, support us how you can. And, uh, yeah, do all the other good stuff. Yes. Also, I know I already said this, but please be patient about recommendations. I'm getting to them. I I do them in chunks. So like I did a huge chunk last week because yep. I had time when I was at home and I was like, I'm going to put recommendations into the calendar. Right. So please be patient. It might even take me up to a month, a month and a half to get them in the calendar. They They'll will get go in the in. calendar. They will go in the calendar. Double, please, Lord, double check that you have an English report. Yes. Because sometimes the report is not in English. And I'm like, listen, friendo, um, I have to tell you no, because the report you gave us isn't in English and we do not speak Portuguese. Right. Um, Spanish, we can probably do okay. Italian, okay. French, mm, okay. <laughs> I figured out why the PGAs are out of stock. They don't make them anymore? They don't make them anymore. Uh, Dang it. Is there another set of PJs we can get? Do they have uh, there's one for women. Oh. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll check into that. They have pajama pants. It's not the same, though. Yeah, I'm going to have to take that off the website. Though. They also have women's satin pajamas, but that's extra. Literally, it's extra. Yeah, I believe it. That doesn't mean I don't want satin pajamas. <laughs> that just means... The manufacturing cost is $60. Oof. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Um, anyway. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.